So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you've given us your word. As I say quite often, we would be lost without it. We would be left wondering to our own devices, our own thinking and feeling as to who you are and what you're about. But we don't have to do that. Uh, Lord, we have your word, 66 books spanning over 1,500 years of time where you have seen fit to record your thoughts, your mind, your will, your history uh, for us. And so, God, as we embark on this study in Daniel right now, we would pray two very simple things, that we would understand it rightly and that we'd have the courage to apply it diligently to our lives. So, Lord, give us understanding. May we understand rightly what you've said in your word, and God, give us the courage, the gumption, the strength of will uh, to apply these things to our lives. As we're going to see, those two prayers are going to be a real tall order. So help us do that this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine if America were to ever be taken over by another country, and you and me hauled off to a foreign land. I know it's not a pleasant thought, and let's certainly hope that it never happens to us, at least anytime soon, but the reality is, is that this kind of thing has happened to many great countries over the centuries. I look up here on the screen. For instance, in Western and Eastern Europe, France has been enemy-occupied before. So has Hungary, Poland, Austria, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Yugoslavia, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarus, large Western portions of Russia, Tunisia, and Italy. Eastern countries like Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, the Philippines, Malaysia, much of eastern China, Manchuria, Korea, have all been occupied just within the last hundred years by foreign powers. Uh, we are so very blessed here, folks, in the United States. Unlike many other countries, since the dawn of the 20th century, we've never had to endure enemy occupation. Yet in the grand scheme of things, what I need you to see this morning is that this is the exception, certainly not the norm. That compared to many other countries in our world, we have been relatively safe. There was a movie that was made in the 1980s starring the late Patrick Swayze called Red Dawn. Some of you might or might not remember it. And it played out what it would be like if America was ever occupied. And it showed Americans having to hide out in the hills and the mountains. It showed Americans losing their homes and their communities, being relegated to holding areas made of barbed wire. Imagine what it would be like to be taken from your home, leaving all your possessions behind, being separated from family, and from loved ones. Imagine what it would be like taken to a foreign nation imposed in its values and its secular culture. Imagine what this would do to your daily life and your standard of living. No local parks to hang out in. No McDonald's to go to. No McDowell Mountains to hike in. No Cheesecake Factory. I mean, all the things that you and I take for granted would be gone. No weekly church. No midweek Bible study. And folks, it's almost impossible for you and I to picture such a scenario because of the safety we have in our country. But just try, try to imagine what it would be like. Because you see, if you can remotely grab onto this scenario at all in your mind's eye, then you can begin to imagine what is happening in this very first chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel. Let me give you some fast facts. The year is 605 B.C. Daniel is a young Jewish boy of royal lineage. He's probably about 15 years old. And he's been living in the Scottsdale equivalent of Jerusalem at that time. 
I mean, he was just raised in a really good upper middle class home most of his first 15 years. But his nation has been going downhill for about 200 years now. Values have been eroding. The Jewish faith has been watered down. Political leaders didn't lead very well. Typical nation going down the wrong path kind of stuff. And God, as many of you know, wasn't very pleased. And so he was going to allow some bad things to happen. They had already started to this chosen nation of his. So the northern tribes of Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians some 100 years later. And now, in 605, a very powerful leader by the name of Nebuchadnezzar has come through Jerusalem, most likely on his way back from battle, and has decided to begin the captivity and deportation of this southern kingdom of Israel, the only one left, called Judah. That's what's happening here. And so from the year 605 B.C., when Daniel begins, to about 587 B.C., there would be three, count them, three deportations of the Jews from Jerusalem to a foreign nation about 900 miles away called Babylon or the land of Shinar. And this would be a 70-year captivity, longer than most people would even be alive back then. And Daniel and his three friends were part of the very first group of young Jews to be taken from their homeland to this strange and foreign country where modern-day Iraq is right now. So let this sink in a moment, folks. you got these four young Jewish boys, gifted and healthy. I mean, they were the cream of the crop. They were the National Honor Society kids. They were the football, track, and basketball stars at their high school. And they were also very spiritual. They went to youth group on a regular level. I mean, these were good kids. And now they've been removed from all that they know and love to a totally pagan and foreign nation, complete with its own false religion built upon mythical gods and superstition. Their parents were nowhere in sight, and they have now been taken captive in order to be indoctrinated into the lifestyle and beliefs of the Chaldeans, fully immersed into this non-Jewish secular nation at that time. They had no good role models around them. The king of Judah at that time was a guy by the name of Jehoiakim, and 2 Kings 24 tells us, and I quote, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not a very good role model. The next king will be his son, Jehoiakim, and he would also do, and I quote, evil in the sight of the Lord. The next king will be Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, and he will carry on the tradition of doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So three kings at that time, all not good role models for Daniel and his three friends. And then the only guy that would even be a good role model is the prophet Ezekiel, which many of you have heard of, and eventually he'll make it to Babylon, but not for years after this. So here you have Daniel and his three friends deported to Babylon without any of the resources that you and I take for granted every day to maintain our faith and action. This is the opening scene that the book of Daniel begins with. And then, as if all of this were not bad enough, their captors even changed the boys' names. Look at verse 7 of Daniel chapter 1. Look up here on the screen. It says, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Some of you might remember that in Middle Eastern ancient culture, names had a lot of meaning. Give me a head nod that you guys remember that, right? In other words, not like today where you just name somebody something and you don't even know what it means. Back then, when they named a kid, it had some very personal, intimate meaning that actually gave a kid his or her identity. 
And so look up here on the screen. Here is what these names connoted. This is kind of fascinating. Daniel means God is judge. Kind of like a good old Jewish justice-oriented name, right? God is judge. His new name, Belteshazzar, means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of the leading so-called gods of Babylon back then. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious, the God of grace. Shadrach means command of Aku. Aku was the moon god in Babylon. Mishael means who is he that is God? It's a rhetorical question denoting or connoting God's sovereignty. Who is God but God? And Meshach means who or what is Aku. Again, that moon god. And then Azariah means the Lord helps. We all know that God is helpful. Abednego means servant of Nebo. Nebo was Bel's son. Again, another mythical god at that time. So they had once had nice, thoughtful, spiritually meaningful Hebrew names. And now they were given names, don't miss this, that did nothing but mess with their spiritual identity and try to cast doubt on who God really is. And so this is the setting, folks, a foreign secular land bent on messing with their faith and values, far from all support, with no role models, and their identity being attacked. Certainly not the best scenario that any of us would wish for our kids. And yet, with all of this backdrop, what happens next in chapter 1 is nothing short of mind-blowing. Because it's right at this point, right at the outset of all of this, that Daniel and his friends do something not expected of most teenagers, let alone most teenagers who have just gone through what they have gone through. So look at verse 8. This is the key sentence of all of Daniel chapter 1. This is going to help you understand what the whole chapter is about. And it says this. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You want to know why Daniel is considered one of the most heroic figures of all the Old Testament? It's right here. Focus on those two words, but Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved. That word resolve here in the original Hebrew that Daniel 1 was written in literally means to purpose in one's heart. It's an interesting word. It carries with it the idea that the components of Daniel's interior world, things like his heart and his mind and his will, were churning at this point. They were processing all that was going on around him, as any of us would do. And yet as he added it all up in his mind and his heart, this foreign, pressure-filled, secular culture, combined with the faith of his upbringing and what he knew about God's law and truth, he resolved to do something. He internally made a decision that would affect his outward actions. And though it might sound like really simple and even non-important what he resolved to do, like not to eat the rich food and wine provided by the king for his indoctrination, but to ask for vegetables and water instead, the reasons that he chose not to partake of this food and drink were core to Daniel's walk with Almighty God and his integrity. And it was a pretty powerful, if not risky, resolve. You see, folks, what almost every Old Testament expert agrees on is that there were mainly two reasons that Daniel chose to resolve not to eat and drink the rich food and wine that all the other captives were eating and drinking. The first reason was that this rich food was most likely almost surely not kosher. 
If you were to read Leviticus chapter 11 or Deuteronomy chapter 14, you would read all the dietary laws that were imposed upon Israel at that time. They couldn't eat rabbit. They couldn't eat camels. They couldn't eat pork. They couldn't eat any meat that still had the blood in it. And tons of other things that they were not allowed to eat and then the things that they were allowed to eat. God was showing Israel as separate from all the other nations, a sign of his holiness. That's what the law was about. And so almost surely the Babylonians were eating all those things. That was part of their rich diet. And Daniel knew that he couldn't do that based on God's law. And the second reason that Daniel probably could not eat this food was that it was most likely sacrificed to idols. As we've already established, this was a pagan nation that had all kinds of mythical gods that will eventually turn into the Greek gods and all these things. And, and they sacrificed a lot of their stuff and their food to these gods. And Exodus chapter 34, verse 15, says that Israelites could not eat food sacrificed to idols. So Daniel knew that he couldn't eat this food. So don't miss this, folks. On two accounts, on both a ceremonial level as well as on a moral level, Daniel knew that he would be compromising his faith if he ate this food. I love how Donald Campbell puts it in his book on Daniel called God's Man in a Secular Society. Look up here on the screen. He says Daniel could discern the fact that the Babylonian culture was in conflict with the Word of God. And he had the maturity and moral courage to say a firm no to culture pressures. Involved in this is the clear implication that Daniel was a keen student of the Scriptures and that he had the ability to apply what he knew to the problems of daily life. Daniel resolved. And it was a resolve that stemmed from his internal convictions informed and guided by God's revelation, his word as found in the law. And once you get this, folks, what you don't want to miss is that it is then, right on the heels of this resolve, that this opening chapter tells us twice that God gave something to Daniel and his friends. This is the pattern I need you to see. Daniel and his friends resolved, and then God gave. Look at verses 9 and 17. This is so revealing. It says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Interesting. That word favor here in verse 9 is the Hebrew word hesed, and it means kindness or goodwill. That word also in verse 9, the word compassion, is the Hebrew word rahaman, and it literally means tender feelings. So add that all up here. In response to Daniel's resolve, God caused the chief of the eunuchs who was overseeing this three-year process of indoctrination to go with Daniel's plan to not eat the king's food but to have vegetables and water instead. And as you and I know from reading this story earlier, God even allowed Daniel and his friends to fare really well under this diet and even look better and more fit than all the other interns who were eating rich food. And so God was giving Daniel and his friends protection here. Please see that in response to the resolve that they made not to cave in to culture. He caused the chief eunuch there to have favor and compassion on him. He protected Daniel, I think, based on this resolve. And then as if this were not enough, it says in verse 17 that God further gave Daniel and his friends deep understanding and wisdom in all that they were learning, and even specifically Daniel, the ability to interpret visions and dreams. 
In other words, God also gave them provision here. Provision in order to stand tall in that culture that they were in. I like how Walbert in his commentary on this basically points out that, that at this time what they needed more than anything was that ability to discern truth from error. And in response to their resolve to not cave in, God gave them that ability to live in this culture away from their family, their friends, their society. And he gave them the ability and wisdom to know right from wrong, truth from error. He protected them in response to their resolve. So put all this together, folks. Daniel and his friends resolved in verse 8. They resolved to not become like the world and culture around them. And God gave, in verse 9 and 17, them protection in the form of favor with the authorities and provision in the form of wisdom and understanding of the culture around them. They resolved and God gave. It's the clear and profound pattern of relational and spiritual activity being played out here in Daniel chapter 1. And the simple but profound point that I need you to take home with you this morning is this. And that is that he still does this today. That was a really good point for an amen. Let's try another of that again, okay? <laughs> My point is, is that he still does this today. Amen. He does. The reality is, is that as you and I make resolves in our lives, as we follow God like Daniel and his friends did, even in our own Babylon, the reality is, is that he's going to shower us with his faithfulness. And so here's our main point this morning. It's taken us a while to get to, but it's worth the wait once you understand the backdrop of this chapter. Look up here on the screen, and that is that when we resolve to follow God, God gives favor or protection and wisdom or provision so that we can stand tall for him. That's the main point of chapter 1. That when you and I resolve to follow God like Daniel and his friends did, and remember, they were only 15 years old most likely, but when you and I do it in our culture, God responds with faithfulness and protecting and providing us, most likely even in similar ways. What he did in the lives of Daniel and his three companions, I believe he wants to do in our lives today as we make similar resolves, we'll see what that means in a minute, based on his word. You know, as I was recently on my uh, study break, giving lots of time and attention to these opening chapters of Daniel, I was asking myself when I got to this point in the story, I said, well, what kind of resolves would God want us to make today? Like, doesn't that become the key question? I mean, realizing that we're no longer under Old Testament dietary restrictions like Daniel and his friends were, so we probably aren't going to make the resolve that they made, and yet realizing that we also have a our own culture to be careful of as we do our best to follow the Lord. I ask myself, what kind of resolves could we make that would allow us to also see and experience God's faithfulness to us in this way? And I came up with three things, at least three things, to get you thinking about daily resolves that you and I can make. Three things that I believe collate well with Daniel's resolve and yet are also talked about all the time as we make our way into the New Testament that tells us how to live out our Christian faith. So in our brief time remaining, I just want to share with you three resolves that I think you and I can make. You ready for these? Here's the first one. That is that we can resolve to put God and his priorities above all else in our lives. Resolve to put God and his priority above all else in your life. You know, one of the things that I love 
about Daniel and his commitment to God and his word here is the fact that he, he knew that God had priorities. He knew that God had outlined these priorities in his law. And so Daniel made it a habit to know God's words and adopt God's priorities. And so as we're going to see as we go along in this book, when it came to things like what customs to follow or not follow in Babylon, or who to listen to or not listen to, or who or what to honor or not honor, Daniel and his friends knew around every corner what they should do because they based their lives on God's revealed truth to them and they made their decisions in light of this. And you and I need to do the same. I love how one of the old great Old Testament scholars of the 1800s, Johann Kyle, says it. Look up here on the screen. He says, Daniel's resolution to refrain from such unclean food flowed from fidelity to the law and from steadfastness to the faith that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And the point is, is that you and I can do this same thing that Daniel did. But we can likewise realize God's priorities for our lives. And I'm talking about things like righteousness, holiness, grace, truth, love, other-centeredness, faith, perseverance. You know the New Testament values. And then make a choice to not just give lip service to these things on Sunday morning, but to give them first place status Monday through Saturday in our lives. That's what Daniel and his friends did. That's what unleashed a sense of seeing and experiencing God's faithfulness. And I need to emphasize here once again, folks, that this is an internal resolve that you and I make. This all begins with what happens on the inside of us, and I can't emphasize this enough. It's an internal decision that we make, the churning of our hearts and our minds that eventually will play itself out in our actions. And so don't mistake this. This is not just some rule sheet that you and I follow or some behavior that we imitate in the good Christians around us. If you do that, it's going to quickly lead to legalism and self-righteousness and everybody's going to smell it a mile away. No, this is you looking to God, you hearing Him in His Word, hiding it away in your heart, thinking about it for days and weeks and months at a time, and then deciding that His priorities are going to be your priorities, that you're going to own these things for yourself. And then from this internal resolve, you watch your behaviors and your actions begin to follow suit. And anything else short-circuits this process and weakens your Daniel-like resolve. You know, there's a great story told by Jay Kessler, who was a longtime president of Youth for Christ and then the longtime president of Taylor University. And it's a story that has to do with a piece of equipment that they originally used to engage in deep ocean exploration. Give me a click here, guys. Called a, a bathysphere. Some of you might remember what bathyspheres are. Now, listen to what Keller says in the analogy that he draws. This is very interesting. He says, a bathysphere is a miniature submarine used to explore the ocean in places so deep that the water pressure would crush a conventional submarine like an aluminum can. Bathyspheres compensate with plate steel several inches thick, which keeps the water out, but also makes them heavy and hard to maneuver. Inside, they're very cramped. When these craft descend to the ocean floor, however, he says, they find that they're not alone. But when their lights are turned on and you look through the tiny, thick place glass windows, what do you see? You see fish. He asks, how do these fish 
survive in such deep places. These fish cope with extreme pressure in an entirely different way than bathyspheres. They don't build thick skins. They remain supple and free. He says they compensate for the outside pressure through equal and opposite pressure inside themselves. And then he draws this parallel. He says Christians likewise don't have to be hard and thick-skinned as long as they appropriate, appropriate God's power within to equal the pressure without. So do you get what he's saying here? I, I like this. He's suggesting that there actually can be two types of Christians today. There can be Christians who are like bathyspheres, right? And we all know Christians like this. They compensate for the pressure without by developing a real thick skin around them. And they become crusty and they become hard and they're not going to let anything in or anything out. And yet inside they're all cramped up, they're all tightly wound and there's no joy or freedom in their life. But they're protected from the world around them, right? It's kind of the bathysphere type of Christian. But then there's the other Christian that's like a fish who's living and swimming on the bottom of the ocean. This is the kind of fish who, by God's design, has learned to compensate with the outward pressure by having equal internal pressure putting out so that there's a balance there. This is the kind of Christian who has an internal Daniel-like resolve to their lives. Enough stuff has happened internally, the resolves that they make to know God and love Him and follow Him, that there's an equal pressure going out so they can deal with the pressure coming in. And that's exactly, folks, what was happening with Daniel and his three friends in this chapter. And it's what can happen to you and I. We resolve to put God and his priorities above all else. It's an inside-out thing. We resolve. But we're not done yet. There's a second way we can resolve like Daniel resolved, and that is that we resolve to not become too much like the secular culture around you. In other words, the first resolve you make is just to identify God's priorities and prioritize those in your life to develop internal strength. But, but then you do also need to resolve uh, to be guarded in some senses and to not become too much like the secular culture around you. And I would submit to you that this is huge, folks. This is exactly what Daniel and his friends will be engaged in in these first six chapters of this book, living and functioning in a secular culture, trying to live and relate authentically, not necessarily retreating from that culture because they couldn't, but at the same time guarding their very souls to become not too polluted by the spiritual and moral stink that was all around them. And this is a very hard thing to do if you've ever tried it. It's a lot easier said than done. But I'm going to blow your mind here. This is such a hard thing to do that in Jesus's, one of Jesus' very, very last prayers for his disciples and then for us who would come to believe, he prayed for this exact thing for us, for our ability to be able to live in the culture but not be of it. Look at John chapter 17, verses 15 to 16. Jesus' words. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, the connotation being in the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, over the years, Bible teachers have taught it this way. You've heard this before. They've said we need to be in the world, just not of it. And folks, it's a true balancing act. That we need to remain connected to a world and culture that desperately needs to hear about God and His love for us in Christ. It's just that simultaneously, we need to be very careful that as we remain in culture, that we don't become too much like it. 
Otherwise, we start to cave in on our own faith. And I would submit to you that this is a resolve that you and I make. It's a resolve. You know, I'm really reticent to give you this example that I'm about to give you because, um, you know, it's one that, that was used so many times years and years ago, but I've actually found that the pendulum has maybe swung the other way. How many of you have been a Christian, this will be easy in this service, from say the 1950s or 1960s? Let me see a hand raise. Okay, uh, about half of you. Uh, if you were a Christian back in the 50s and 60s, you might remember that uh, the church had quite a few rules of what you were to do and not do. Do you guys remember those days? You didn't go to movies. You didn't dance. You didn't play cards. You didn't do a lot of things the culture around you was doing. They were kind of like the bathyspheres of that time. Develop that hard, crusty outside, keep the bad world from, from polluting you. And in many ways, that was good. That protected a lot of people. But that also became very legalistic over time, right? And, and so now the church has lightened up a lot, and we give people a tremendous amount of freedom to uh, live out their faith as, as God leads them. But I don't know. I think sometimes we've gone to the opposite extreme in this. Give me a head nod if you get that at all. I mean, I don't think too much about going to a PG-13 movie, you know, and yet I have found myself, maybe I'm just getting older, but in the last couple of years, I've found myself walking out of about three or four different PG-13 movies, especially when Hollywood tries to be funny. When it's action and adventure, I tend to do okay, but every time Hollywood tries to do comedy, what do they do comedy around? Sexuality. And I find I get very offended at that. I was at a movie, a PG one, with my 13 or my 17-year-old daughter just about this last summer. And about halfway through, I was so mortified by what I was seeing, I just leaned over. I said, honey, would it be okay if we just left? She said, I was hoping you would say that a half an hour ago. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow. I mean, I think we've gone to the other extreme. I love a story that Ron Hutchcraft tells in one of his books. He tells a story about visiting Fort Sumter in South Carolina. And I was, he was all excited to go visit Fort Sumter. And that as he was approaching there, and he knew that they would have guides that would take him around, he wondered if the guides would be dressed in southern Confederate uniform or northern, or northern uniforms. Because if you know anything about Fort Sumter, it originally started as a Union fort, but then it switched sides two or three times during the war. And so he thought, I wonder how the guides are going to dress. And when he got there, he found, and this is true, that the soldier was wearing a blue coat with gray pants. So he had on both uniforms. And Hutchcraft made the funny joke that, that if this had been done in 1861, he would have been shot by both sides, right? <laughs> and then he says this. I, I love this quote. He, he says, it's not a good idea for a follower of Christ to send double signals to his world either. He says, compromise increases stress over the long haul. The deception, the half-heartedness tears us apart. When people aren't sure of our stand, they're going to keep pushing, he says. And I think there's something to that. I think one of the resolves that you and I make to, to allow our lives to be very Daniel-like, to see God's faithfulness unleashed in our lives, is this resolve to not become too much like the world around us. I don't think too many Christians think about that anymore today. And I think it's one of the resolves we need to get back to. So you resolve to put God and his priorities above all else in your life. You resolve to not become too much like the secular culture around you. And then lastly, with this we're done, you resolve to be devoted to God no matter what. You resolve to be devoted to God no matter what. Now folks, listen closely. If there is anything that Daniel does and will teach us, it's this. 
That no matter what life and culture may throw your way, whether it's temptations to compromise your faith or to bow down to things other than God or worldviews that tell you that the God of the Bible isn't true or even that your failure is too great that God can't forgive you, you can still exercise devotion to Him that does nothing but allow you to experience His faithfulness to you. In fact, I think this is the message of Daniel 1 through 6, the first six chapters. I thought long and hard when I was on my study break of what to call this series. And I just got to confess to you guys that I stink at naming series. I really do. I I mean, I'm not creative. I'm a theologian by trade. So every time I come back and I have a name for the series and I tell the creative arts people what we're going to name it, they give me that infamous deer in the headlights look, which is their most respectful way of saying that's a loser title. And I always throw it back on them and say, well, then what are you guys going to call it? And you know what happened this time around? I gave them my title, ever devoted, ever faithful. And they gave me that infamous deer in the headlights look. So I said to them, will you tell me what you're going to name it? You know what they came back with? Nothing. So this is the title that we're going with. And though it might not be the most scintillating, engaging, creative title you've ever heard for a sermon series, I want to tell you this, it is theologically right on. Because what this series is going to be about is us showing our devotion, making resolves, putting lines in the sand to not live like the world around us and seeing God's faithfulness unleashed in our lives. I mean, think of some of the stories that we're going to revisit in this series. We're going to revisit that story of the fiery furnace in chapter 3 and how they trusted God with a non-demanding trust. Whatever God delivers, we will accept, but He can deliver us from this furnace. And they saw His faithfulness. Remember chapter 6, the whole lion's den thing, right? Daniel's thrown in the lion's den, and he trusted God. He made a resolve to trust him with everything in him, and he saw God's faithfulness unleashed in his life. Every chapter, we're going to see some aspect of devotion that these guys show to God and a corresponding faithfulness that God gives them in response. That's why I say you resolve to be devoted to God no matter what. I'm blown away. Daniel did all this, and his friends did all this, and they were just teenagers. The deck was stacked against them. The odds weren't good, but they remained devoted, and as the New Testament says, or would say, the eyes of their heart were enlightened, and they saw and experienced God's goodness and faithfulness. Daniel resolved, and God gave. So let me leave you with this question, then we're going to pray. What resolves are you making today? Because here's the deal. The people that I know who resolve to adopt God's priorities and make them first place, the people who I know who resolve to not become too much like the culture around them, the people I know who resolve to be highly devoted to God no matter what, these folks tend to experience God's favor and His wisdom, His protection and His provision. And you and I both know people like that. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had 5,000 adults and another five, six hundred teenagers in this church that made similar resolves and experienced God's faithfulness that way. I long for that day. It'd be an amazing thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that once again you meet us in your word and you uh, give us truth that we can surely live by. And so, Father, I pray that as we've just scratched the surface of Daniel chapter one, but looked at this idea of resolve and what you do when we resolve to follow you, I pray, God, that that would be the experience that we would lead each and every one of us down. God, we haven't gotten too detailed on what the resolves look like today. We've given some broad parameters because each of us are at different places in our life. But, God, my prayer is is that as we ponder these truths, as we 
dare to live them out in our lives, that you would show us what resolves you would have us make. And that God, in response to the Daniel-like resolves we make, God, would you unleash your faithfulness in our lives. May we see it and experience it in whatever fashion you would choose to give it. God, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you that, as the scriptures say, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful because you're always true to who you are and your love for us. Meet us now at this communion table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Servers are going to come forward now and begin passing out the communion elements. And I've asked Joe uh, to lead us in a, in, a, in a song that many of you are familiar with. It's a highly, highly devotion-oriented song that will allow you, as you worship God during this time, to, to commit your life to him once again, just to give your heart to him. And so uh, the men and gals are going to hand out the elements to us now. We'd ask you to hold them and partake, and then I'll lead us in partaking of them together.
One of the things I love about the interplay between the Old Testament and the New is that you read about, obviously, God and His justice and even wonderful glimpses of His grace throughout all of the Old Testament. And as the book of Hebrews say, just a, a shadow of the things to come. And then you get to the New Testament with the coming and the revelation of Jesus and everything goes from black and white to technicolor. All of a sudden, the spiritual world opens up in ways that the Old Testament kept priming us for, hinting to, pointing to. And in Jesus, the revelation, the love and grace, truth, all wrapped up together is now here among us. So that song was well chosen for us today to, to, to look into his face and to, to worship him, to love him. And that's what this communion service as part of our service is all about so on the night that jesus was betrayed he took the bread that they were eating and he broke it he said this bread this body my body is going to be given for you whenever you eat it i want you to remember me And in the same way, Jesus took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. Whenever you drink it, I want you to remember me. God, we thank you that you've given your son, Jesus. And indeed, we end this service today on a note of profound remembrance, on a note of focusing upon him giving our heart and our lives to him once again and realizing that every resolve that we make today centers and focuses on our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we go out of here right now that for those of us who have come to believe and trust in Christ, no matter where our lives might be right now circumstantially, that we would know that your grace and your love and that your hope has pervaded our hearts and our minds and that we have reason to rejoice each and every day. God, lift our sights to that. Give us the hope and the faith and the love and the goodness and the grace that we need to follow you until we meet again. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the church says together, amen. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.